The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Uh, well, nice to see you. Uh, well done for turning up on a cool day uh, and a difficult topic. Uh, I wanted to begin today by, uh, I guess, looking at, um, well, actually, the talk today is bookended, um, begins and ends with two quotes uh, from two men who were famous in the 20th century uh, for talking about uh, religion and very different views. The first one uh, is Bertrand Russell. Now, is that, this is going to deafen people. This sounds very loud. Is that how, Greg, you can hear? Is that okay? Okay, right. Uh, The first one is Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a a philosopher, mathematician, and outspoken atheist. He died in about 1970, something like that. In 1927, he gave a talk entitled Why I Am Not a Christian. The talk was then turned into an essay and published as a book. It's unusual for someone to actually put the boot into Jesus. Almost everybody is positive about Jesus, even if they've never read what he actually says or they've invented their own version of him. Almost everyone's positive, except Bertrand Russell actually puts the boot in. Listen to what it is that he says uh, about Jesus. There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ certainly, as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment, and one does find repeatedly a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching, an an attitude which is not uncommon with preachers. I would dispute that, but anyway, that's I have a skin in the game. Uh, But which does somewhat detract from superlative excellence. You do not, for instance, find that attitude in Socrates. You'll find him quite bland and urbane towards uh, the people who would not listen to him. And it is, to my mind, far more worthy of a sage to take, that in, uh, to take that line than to take the line of indignation. You probably all remember the sort of things that Socrates was saying when he was dying and the sort of things that he generally did say to people who did not agree with him. You'll find that in the Gospels, Christ said, "'Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell?' Uh, That was said to people who did not like his preaching. It's not really, to my mind, the best tone, and there are a great many of these things about hell. Well, uh, Bertrand Russell is right about one thing and totally wrong about another. But let's start with the thing that he's right about, and that is, he's right, Jesus taught about hell. Absolutely. Uh, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Here's some statistics for you. We have 1,870 verses that record the teaching of Jesus. 1,870 verses, 13% of those are about the judgment of God and the afterlife, more than any other topic. Jesus taught 40 parables, more than half of them are about the judgment of God uh, and eternal punishment. The word Gehenna, the toughest word for hell in the Bible, uh, is listed 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those are on the lips of gentle Jesus. Um, you, you can't have the real Jesus and not have the topic that he taught about more than any other. Uh, there's just no avoiding it. 
Now, here's one of the problems. I mean, if that's not enough of a problem, here's one of the problems. In the last 20 centuries, what people have tried to do is to go beyond what the New Testament says about hell and kind of, if you like, put put flesh or show what hell's going to be like in detail. And so you get these really macabre, gruesome paintings in the Middle Ages with you know, with, with demons torturing people or eating people or the, you know, the seven deadly sins being punished, like, you know, the person who's a, a glutton is being punished with their stomach and the person who's a liar is being punished in their tongue and then probably we'll, we'll stop there, but you can kind of fill in the numbers, I guess. Um, Jesus never does that. What Jesus does as he speaks about, about hell, about punishment, is he uses uh, metaphors, or word pictures to give you a, a, um, one angle on this. So uh, the word Gehenna actually comes from a, a way of referring to the Valley of Hinnon, which is one of the steep valleys around Jerusalem, which uh, in the 7th, 8th century BC was used for human sacrifice. Uh, all sorts of terrible stuff happened there. And eventually the Jews turned it into a rubbish dump where the fires burned all the time and unclean thing was, stuff was burnt and destroyed. So he's saying it'll be like being thrown into the burning rubbish dump. He talked about fire, which points towards destruction. Uh, he talked about the prison, which means there'll be no escape. He talked about the pit or the abyss, which will be dark, deep, terrible. He talked about outer darkness, the idea, I think, of being alone. He talked about the grinding or gnashing of teeth, the idea of regret. Now, if you're thinking, if you, you, know, you might think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can it be fire or you know the lake of fire and also out of darkness at the same time the answer is it can't be so what he's doing is he's actually giving you metaphors or pictures to say this is a terrible place that will ultimately kind of destroy people yes it'll be lonely it'll be dark it'll be what does jesus talk about an empty lonely terrible existence without god and without hope you might think well how could that possibly be just I think what the New Testament says is this if we've spent a lifetime walking away from God and ignoring him and turning our back on him it's as if come the judgment day God will open the door and say keep going and there's an eternity without God and without hope uh, C.S. Lewis talking about anything how can it go on for that the ability to turn around, the Bible's words for it is repent, the ability to change an attitude towards God is actually the gift of God himself to, to enable you to do that. And you notice as Lachlan read the story for us, you see, look at verse 24, the rich man is in hell. Or, um, you notice he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't even ask to get out. He just stands on his pride. And as C.S. Lewis said, and I think he's right, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Now, personally, I've to be honest, I find this very, very troubling. Seriously. And I, I woke up at half, half past four this morning and stared at the ceiling and thought, okay, I get to go and preach about hell twice today. And it, it, if you understand what it is that Jesus teaches and the implications of that, it is deeply, deeply troubling. And I'll be really honest, I can't emotionally engage with it all the time. I have to kind of put it on the shelf and, and sometimes I can engage with it. No, I just... Okay, so you, you got that? This is, now, part of the reason that we, that we work systematically through books of the Bible here at City Bible Forum is so that the Bible sets the agenda, not me. 
We've just been working through Luke's gospel for the last two or three years. That's what we do. Now, Sam Chan, he gets the kind of the sexy, exciting month and does all those great topics and, you know, all that sort of thing. And just old Al is the bald-headed old draft horse that just plods along. Okay, so, so we're up to Luke 16. And Jesus speaks about hell in this parable. So what I thought we might do is uh, just answer three quick questions, okay? Uh, why did Jesus teach about hell? What did the, uh, why did the rich man go to hell? And how do we avoid going to hell? Okay, all right. First question. Let me just turn the page here. Right. First question. Why did Jesus teach about hell? Simple answer, really, because he believed it. He, more than anyone, knew. He believed it. He knew that it was true. And he talked about this great division that would happen on the judgment day where every person will be judged. Those who have turned to God, who have found forgiveness because of Jesus, who have trusted him will be with him forever. And those who have not, who have refused that, will be sent away from him. And, and the age to come will never end, is what Jesus is saying. And he, he, he talked about it as, a, as warning signs, like he's warning people again and again and again. Now, warning signs work sometimes. I don't know if you noticed the, uh, this week. Was it yesterday or the day before? Oh, it was a tragedy. Uh, two young women. Yeah, they were young. They were only in their 40s. Okay. Um, uh, crocodile attack. Uh, this lady from Lithgow was up there celebrating some stuff with a friend. They're in Daintree Rainforest. I've, I've been to Daintree. I was there last year. I drove through it. And there's massive signs up saying, beware the crocodile. And it doesn't matter what language you speak, a big sign like this with teeth, you kind of, you get it. And so they went swimming on Thornton Beach, which is kind of on the edge of Daintree. They went into the water at 10 o'clock at night, bang, it's a big croc taken this poor lady. Now they went and um, interviewed uh, Warren Ench, um, who was the uh, local MP. Listen to what he said. Um, local... Uh, LNP, Federal MP Warren Ench, criticised Miss Waldron for swimming in an area where warning signs were scattered along the beach. You can't legislate against human stupidity, Mr Ench said. This is a tragedy, but it was avoidable. There are warning signs everywhere up there. Well, there's your compassionate pastor's heart at work, isn't it? I think, oh, man, that, that's right, but it's not how he should have said it, is it? You've got a family that's lost a daughter. You've got people who have lost a sister or just... And that's how Jesus is different. You read the Gospels. Yeah, Jesus does get cranky with people, yes, but it's the people who mislead others and the false teachers that he calls snakes. For people who are just misled, who need to turn to God, he weeps over them, quite literally. Um, in Luke uh, chapter 19, we're told, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. He warns, but he warns with love and compassion and urgency. So second question, why, why did the rich man go to hell? I've only got 20 minutes, let's have a look. Why did the rich man go to hell? Uh, is, it, is it that it's a reversal of fortune? That is, uh, you know, you're, you're rich here, you end up in the bad place in the next life, you're poor here, you get the good stuff in the next life. Kind of just everyone changes places. Uh, if you read the rest of the Bible, that's obviously not what the Bible says. But even in this story, you can know that. Uh, who else, how is the way that Jesus describes heaven? 
He's talking to a first century Jewish audience. It mightn't be how we might think of it. But how does he describe it? Lazarus, the beggar, goes to heaven and heaven is described as being with who? Okay. With Abraham. Okay, In Abraham's bosom, the old uh, translations used to say, he snuggled up to Abraham. Okay, that, That's the picture of heaven, first century Jewish audience. The point is, Abraham was very, very rich on whatever kind of um, scale, very rich in the ancient world. Abraham's rich and, and he's the very kind of marker of heaven. So it's not that if you're rich now, you go to hell. That's, that's not the point at all. Um, did you notice, when we read the story, only one of the characters has a name? The beggar, Lazarus. It's interesting, in all of Jesus' parables, I think he's the only one that's named. But I think Jesus is making a point here that the beggar has a name. He's a, he's a person. He ends up, Abraham speaks of him personally, Lazarus. The rich man is just referred to as, well, he's just a rich man. That's all he is. And I think Jesus wants us to see that somehow his money, that, that defined him. That's who he was. He was a rich man. Okay. Uh, what I haven't been able to do, I, I should have perhaps printed out the whole of chapter 16. Luke's put the chapter together very carefully. It's a, a brilliantly written, brilliantly structured, crafted story that Luke's researched for us. In Luke chapter 16... Uh, let's see. Oh, yes. Chapter 16. I always wanted to use one of these. Um, chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples. And then 17, verse 1, is the other bookend. Jesus said to his disciples. Chapter 16 has two parables and some teaching in the middle. And the whole thing is about money, the future, and God. And what Jesus is saying is the way that you use your money now, the way that you regard money, shows what you believe about God, what you believe about the future, and where your heart is. So have a look with me back at, say, 16 verse 10. You've got it. What Jesus is doing is, uh, if you like, contrasting the wealth that we have here, which he says is only small, no matter, you know, it can be Harry Triggerboff, right? But it, it's only a little bit of value compared to eternity and the riches that God will give people in eternity. In other words, the riches of being in heaven and being with God. Um, I think you'll get the idea. Look, verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. In other words, the little, what you do with the little things reflects what you'll do with the big things. What does he mean? Well, verse 11. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Our wealth here is only little, the true riches of eternity... What you do now affects what God will give you in eternity. Or verse 12, and if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, meaning really everything here belongs to God anyway, who will give you property of your own in eternity? And if you, in case you're wondering what that means, Jesus like, hits the nail home in verse 13. No one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one... Uh, and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Notice he doesn't say don't serve God and money. He says you can't serve God and money. Now, how will you know who's your master? Well, very simple. You look at your credit card statements or your checkbook stubs or where your money goes. That You, you can see that very simply. Not only, not only did this man not, not, have, not serve the true God, but he didn't listen to what God had said. 
That's another simple way to see. So God had told him in the law of Moses, in the prophets, how it is that he should live, and he ignored it. I'll give you an example. You've got Lazarus at the gate, covered in sores, and the dogs are licking the sores. Okay? In the law of Moses, uh, all Israelites were told as follows, the book of Deuteronomy, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Look after the poor, be generous, care for them. And here's this man who's so wealthy, he's like a gated estate, got the beggar at the door, the dog's licking him, he's starving, all he wants to do is eat table scraps. You think, oh, wait a minute, maybe maybe he didn't know that um, Lazarus was there. Maybe, you know, the limo just went in and out of the gate really quickly and he didn't notice and, and it's a clever story because you know that's not the case. Can anyone pick in the story how you know that the rich man knew the beggar was there. Can you pick that as you look at the story? Anyone? I can see a few screensavers have gone on here. Okay. Yeah, uh, Peter. That's exactly right. He called him by name. Verse 24, verse 27. He knew his name. So do you see the point? This isn't like a 49% fail. Oh, if only he... This isn't like you walk past the homeless guy at the station one day and you don't know quite what to do give him money or not or this is he knew his name the man's rich Lazarus is hungry the dogs are licking his sores with a click of the finger he could have transformed this man's life and he did nothing this is very clearly not listening or if you like serving money rather than God now what will money do See, money, money becomes your functional God if that's where you find your, your status and your significance and your security and all of those things that should come from knowing God, well, money, money offers them and kind of, well, at least half delivers them, doesn't it? And so, do you notice he's still hanging on to the status and kind of things? That, see verse 24. What's interesting, he doesn't ask for forgiveness He doesn't ask to get out. He just expects Lazarus to come and be a flunky for him. Uh So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And no apologies. Not even, oh, Lazarus, I'm so sorry that I ignored you. And He'd spent his life ignoring God. God has, if you like, reinforced that and sent him away. And there is no forgiveness. He, He doesn't ask. Last one, how can we avoid or how do we avoid going to hell? Well, here's the question, who, who should we identify with in, in the story? You know, when, you, when you read a parable, you're meant to sort of identify with a character and that's the way to learn from it. Um, okay, anyone want to identify with the rich man? No, 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 that's definitely not that, no. Uh, Abraham? No. Lazarus? Mm, no, okay. The five brothers. Why? Because they're still alive. And when we started this talk, most of you were too, all right? Some of you are looking a little tired now, but okay, all right? Yeah, the five brothers. Why? Because they still have the choice to not go there. That's the point. Okay? Now, if you look at um, verse 14, you see who Jesus is speaking to? He's speaking to the audience of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were um, renowned as the people who, 
who memorized the Old Testament. They were the people of the book. Etc. But the question is, Jesus is asking, are they really listening? Okay. Are they really listening or not? And so you see what the, um, what the rich man says, and you hear what he kind of implies as well. Um, look at verse 27. He answered, this is the rich man speaking to Abraham as they kind of shout across the gulf. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. It's kind of an implication that, well, I didn't really have enough information and if they, you know, if you warn them, they might not end up here. Abraham's answer, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. In other words, let them read the the written words that God has given them. The rich man thinks he knows better. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Like if you just pull a rabbit out of a hat, if someone from the dead goes back, they'll believe and, and they'd want to turn to God and trust him. And, and yet Abraham says, no, that's not enough. It wouldn't work. I don't know if you've read uh, John's Gospel. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises a man from the dead, also called Lazarus. I suspect that's why he's chosen the name in this parable. He raises Lazarus from the dead after he's been dead four days. And uh, uh, some of the people who see that believe and want to trust Jesus. But there's others who see that happen, go and tell Jesus' enemies and plan to kill him. And I know several people, I won't say many, but I know several people who do believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but they still don't follow him as Lord and Master. Just believing that isn't enough. What's Abraham say? You need to listen to Moses and the prophets. It's the idea of you need to humble yourself before God, to be prepared to put yourself under what God says and to understand why, what this is all about, to understand what Jesus rising is. See, verse 31, if someone... Abraham doesn't say someone back from the dead. He says someone rises from the dead. It's the same word as used about Jesus' resurrection. Okay. Um, I started off saying where Bertrand Russell was right. Jesus spoke about hell. But Bertrand Russell is wrong when he says there's a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching. That's not true. He gets cranky with false teachers who mislead people. That's, what he, that's who he's getting stuck into. But for ordinary people, he pleads for More than that, it's Jesus' understanding of this teaching, this warning about hell, about being separated from God. It's that that ultimately kills him. It's understanding that that means he's ultimately prepared to go to the cross, to be crucified, to take my guilt and your guilt so that we can be freely forgiven and not go there. It's actually love as he warns people and love as he dies and rises again, and there's free forgiveness. No one needs to go there. There's, there's free forgiveness for anyone who'll turn. Now, Lachlan, have we got time for me to do the last quote? Have we? Okay, great. I just see you looking there. I'm, you're the boss. Remember I said we'd bookend two quotes. First one from Bertrand Russell. This man, Helmut Thieliger, a uh, brilliant German preacher. I'd love to have heard him preach, but I can't speak German, so anyway... Um, He died in uh, 1986, so roughly contemporary with Bertrand Russell and yet totally different views about Jesus uh, and uh, this parable. Let me read you what he says. This is from his uh, sermon called The Waiting Father, uh, from a book called The Waiting Father. 
And when this parable talks about heaven and hell, it's not concerned with the geography of the hereafter. What would that matter to us? Why should we be concerned about the molten core of the earth where some have thought they could locate the inferno? What matters is that all this erupts directly into this very hour of our life here. Then it means that this hour of my life is not determined by the fact that it contains 60 minutes, but by the fact that it is charged and loaded with all the gravity of eternity and that sometime it will run out. Just as this world will one day run down and the last day dawn upon it. You are one of the five brothers of the rich man. That's the focal point of this message. Do not imagine that, as a, mes- that a messenger will come from the beyond and confirm what he said in Moses and the prophets, what seems to you to be so unverifiable, so mythological. Father Abraham will not send you any such confirmation. For anybody who has an interest in evading God will also consider an, appe- consider an appearance from the dead an empty spectre and delusion. Nor will the heavens open above us and God will perform no miracle to bring us to our knees. For God is no shock therapist who works upon our nerves. He loves you as his child and it's your heart he wants. So there will be no one appearing from the dead, no voice from heaven will sound, nor will there be any miracle in the clouds. None of this will come to you who are one of the rich man's five brothers. We have only the word, the word made flesh and crucified. A quiet word which came to us in one who was as poor and despised as his brother Lazarus. Okay. Okay. Uh, Al, wouldn't it be better to be in hell with the people we love than cut off from them? That doesn't sound like paradise. That's a good question. Um, how are we going with this? Am I. Can we maybe take that note? Let's. Uh, yeah, wouldn't it be better to be in hell? Um, with, uh, uh, with the people we love. I've heard people say that. I'd rather be in hell with my mates. Um, we're there, Russ? Yeah, rather be in hell with my mates. I just think what the scriptures say is that relationship, love, is the gift of God, and that won't be there. And one of the ultimate, if you like, heartaches, I think, of being separated from God is that we'll live with the consequences of selfishness. And you notice the rich man is all alone. So I, I think that's, that's the point of um, it, there won't be any friendship or love or there'll just be ultimately selfishness. Uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, is if, if, if you want a picture of heaven and hell, now a lot of it is C.S. Lewis extrapolating and his ideas, but his clever developing ideas. The Great Divorce talks about ultimately the consequences of selfishness and people becoming less and less related to anything. It's a, it's a troubling read. Um, are there any questions from the floor at this stage? Yeah. There's different words in the New Testament that can be translated as hell. Uh, Gehenna, which is probably the hardest word, occurs 11 times in the teachings of Jesus. 
The word in this passage is Hades, which refers to a place of the dead, which can simply refer to the place of the dead, or it can refer to kind of torment and, if you like, the bad place. Luke uses both. In chapter 12, he uses Gehenna, or Jesus uses Gehenna. Um, here, he uses Hades. One of the reasons they think that Luke may have used Hades here, it would um, connect better with the Greek and Roman audience rather than simply a, a Jewish audience. So that can... Um, the question about Jesus, the, one of the creeds, the Apostle Creed says Jesus descended into hell. Um, ultimately, the way the Bible, I think, the way the Bible views hell is a separation from God. Um, when Paul writes the Christians in uh, Thessalonica in the second letter, so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he talks about hell as being um, exclusion from the presence of God. I think Jesus suffered that on the cross. When it says he descended into hell, the sun stops shining, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And father and son are somehow separated. And so at the end, when Jesus says it's finished, he means it, it's done. The price has been paid. And he says to the thief on the cross beside him, today you'll be with me in paradise. I think that's the case, that, that, that's done. Now there's also... Um, uh, some writings in 1 Peter 3 about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. I, I believe that as well, but that's, that's a bit tricky. But I think the idea of Jesus suffering hell, yes, but that happens on the cross. Did you want to... No, I think that's... Cool. Uh, so another question that we've got uh, come through on the SMS line. Um, just before this parable, uh, Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, yes. and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery... Yes. Uh, What's that doing What's in the context of chapter okay. 16 into the parable? How long have we got? Oh, Seven minutes. Yeah. Right. Strap yourself in. You ready? Okay. I, I didn't... We never avoid a particular part of the Bible, but sometimes things can be a little complicated and we don't have to... Uh, why don't I just answer the question? All right. If you look at chapter 16... There's a flow of argument from the first parable, which is about usual money with a view of the future. Then Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And then you notice in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Okay, so the Pharisees are the people who claim to be the people of the Old Testament who honour God, but really life's about greed and they worship money. So Jesus says to them in verse 15... He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people highly value is detestable in God's sight. So they self-justify, aren't I wonderful inside? Uh Uh-uh, greed, not right with God. Okay? Sometimes, in the NIV Bible, the NIV's actually got a heading, additional teachings, which is code for the editors don't know why this is here, so they've just put it in, okay? Let's keep going. Verse 16, Jesus is still talking to the Pharisees, the people who claim to follow Moses and the prophets. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, meaning John the Baptist, who's just been preaching. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. What he's saying is every detail of the law of Moses is applicable and it it won't be wiped out or passed away. It might be fulfilled, but you guys, you claim to follow Moses, but really you don't. And now John's come preaching about the kingdom of God and you're not listening. And then verse 18, I think, is the great example of where they actually didn't truly follow the law of Moses. 
That is that they had made divorce so simple and so easy that if you just said to your wife, I divorce you, you can divorce your wife for burning the toast or if you found someone prettier or I think one of them was if she spun around in the street and showed her knees, you could divorce her. That they just basically turned divorce into serial adultery. And Jesus says, you think you get away with this, but anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You think you've weaseled out from under it, but let me tell you, no, you haven't. That, that's the example. Okay. Uh, that's not the Bible's only teaching on remarriage and divorce. Uh, there's all sorts of other things about that. Um, then he goes on to talk to the Pharisees about, listen to Moses and the prophets. That's what the whole parable's about. If I lost you in that, that's why I didn't go to it in the first During the talk. Cool. Thanks. We have time probably for one more question. Did anyone else from the floor want to ask one, or I can go to an SMS one? All right, Al, quickly. Uh, in what way is Abraham's bosom paradise? It sounds hairy, sweaty, and smelly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the way that... There's nothing weird about it in first century. The way that they ate together is that you would kind of half, half recline with your feet away from the table, lean on a kind of a cushion, and then dip the, the flat bread, you know, the Lebanese bread, into dips, and, and that's, a, that's the way you had a feast. And so the, the, the picture of a feast, uh, heaven is usually described as a feast in the Old Testament. It'll be the great the feast of those who love God and wine and food and all that kind of thing. And what better than to sit beside or to lean beside, to be snuggled up with, Abraham, who is the great patriarch of the faithful. He's the man. Uh, if I forgive the sporting analogy, but it'd be like if you're a cricket tragic, being invited to a dinner and you've got to sit beside Don Bradley. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.